This is episode 159 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled Mikhail Bulgakov's The Fatal Eggs. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about the science fiction novella The Fatal Eggs by Mikhail Bulgakov. So it's going to be a crazy day where we talk about a chicken plague, a stupendous bureaucratic mix-up with eggs, outsized reptiles, all against the backdrop of post-revolutionary Soviet Union by a writer whose work was suppressed, but who was himself protected by Stalin. And like many stories of that time, it's a tale of contradictions. We'll talk about Mikhail's life, about the novella, and about some of the themes in the novella that seem to me to be surprisingly contemporary, if you haven't gotten a hint of those already. So The Fatal Eggs is a satirical science fiction novella by Mikhail Bulgakov. Uh, He was a Soviet novelist and playwright whose most famous work is The Master and Margarita. The Fatal Eggs was written in 1924 and first published in 1925. Uh, It became quite popular but was criticized by many Soviet critics as a mockery of the Russian Revolution and of the leadership. So Bulgakov was actually born in uh, Kiev in 1891, and he died in 1940 in Moscow at the age of only 48. He came from an educated family and wrote plays for his siblings when he was a kid. He studied medicine and volunteered in the First World War and was sent to the front where he was badly injured. In order to cope with that pain, he would inject himself with morphine, and he wrote about addiction and then his overcoming that addiction in his book called, appropriately, Morphine. He worked as a surgeon and a provincial doctor, and he reflected on those experiences in his book, again, appropriately called, A Country Doctor's Notebook. Right, just a little bit of Russian history here, uh, because I had to refresh this for myself, and it's important for our story. So the last Russian czar, Nicholas II, lost power through the rebellions of 1905 and then 1917, when Russia got embroiled in World War II. In 1918, Nicholas II and his family were executed by the Communist Party and Vladimir Lenin. Uh, A Bolshevik party leader then assumed power, and communist Russia became the Soviet Union. So Bulgakov in all of this got discharged in 1918 and returned to Kiev, his birthplace, in time to witness the Bolshevik Red Army, the anti-Bolshevik White Army, 
German occupation forces and the Ukrainian nationalists all struggle for control of the city, which experienced 14 violent changes of government in two years. Uh, so while Kiev was part of several Ukrainian states that were short-lived, the city ultimately became part of the Soviet Union in 1921. And Bulgakov was pressed into service uh, by several of those short-lived governments, while his brothers fought uh, in the White Army against the Bolsheviks. So you can imagine being in a position like that would make you pretty cynical about all sides, or at least have an understanding of the uh, strengths and weaknesses and good values and shortcomings of the various sides. Bulgakov contracted typhus, which allegedly kept him from leaving Russia after the Soviets took over, while most of his family emigrated to France. So he was left behind in Russia. He gave up medicine to write and began working on plays, and he moved to Moscow and began writing articles for newspapers, uh, but he described it as a flow of hopeless gray boredom, unbroken and inexorable, which is kind of funny because the press is portrayed in The Fatal Eggs as really kind of this outrageous, aggressive, sensationalist uh, hounds, and I'll uh, let him tell you about it here. All right, so I'll set up the scene. A professor Perzikov, he's a zoologist in Moscow. He spends all of his time in the lab working. The book is set in 1928, a few years forward from when it was written. His wife had left him 15 years before uh, for a tenor in the opera, and she left behind a note which read, Your frogs make me shudder with intolerable loathing. I shall be unhappy all my life because of them. But uh, Persikov, in fact, loves his frogs, and he spends all of his time working in the lab on them. And through uh, just a stroke of luck, he's discovered a powerful ray from a particular configuration of the windows in his lab and a microscope and the kind of out-of-focus setting on the microscope that causes tadpoles and amoebas to reproduce at an incredibly fast rate. And news of this discovery leaks rapidly, and a day later, his assistant brings him a card from a reporter. And so I'll start to read the excerpt here. The elegantly printed card said, Alfred Arkadyevich Bronsky, correspondent for the Moscow magazines Red Light, Red Pepper, Red Journal, and Red Searchlight, and the newspaper Red Moscow Evening News. Tell him to go to blazes, said Persikov flatly, tossing the card under the table. But after a bunch of back and forth, he relents after the reporter persists, and eventually he says, send him in. A young man with the smoothly shaven, oily face immediately popped up from behind Pankrat's back. He had permanently raised eyebrows like a Chinaman, 
over agate eyes which never looked at the person he was talking to. The young man was dressed impeccably in the latest fashion. He wore a long, narrow jacket down to his knees, extremely baggy trousers, and unnaturally wide, glossy shoes with toes like hooves. In his hands he held a cane, a hat with a pointed top, and a notepad. "'What do you want?' asked Persikoff in a voice that sent Pancraft scuttling out of the room. Weren't you told that I am busy? In lieu of a reply, the young man bowed twice to the professor, to the left and to the right of him. Then his eyes skimmed over the whole laboratory, and the young man jotted a mark in his pad. I am busy, repeated the professor, looking with loathing into the visitor's eyes, but to no avail, for they were too elusive. A thousand apologies, esteemed professor, the young man said in a thin voice, for intruding upon you and taking upon your precious time. But the news of your incredible discovery, which has astounded the whole world, compels our journal to ask you for some explanations. What explanations? What whole world? Persikoff whined miserably, turning yellow. I don't have to give you any explanations or anything of the sort. I'm busy, terribly busy. What are you working on? The young man asked ingratiatingly, putting a second mark in his pad. Well, I'm... Why? Do you want to publish something? Yes, replied the young man, and suddenly started scribbling furiously. Firstly, I do not intend to publish anything until I have finished my work, and certainly not in your newspapers. Secondly, how did you find out about this? Persikoff suddenly felt at a loss. Is it true that you have invented a new life ray? What life ray? exploded the professor. You're talking absolute piffle. The ray I am working on has not been fully studied, and nothing at all is known yet. It may be able to increase the activity of protoplasm. By how much? the young man asked quickly. Persikoff was really at a loss now. The insolent devil! What the blazes is going on? he thought to himself. What ridiculous questions! Suppose I say, well, a thousand times! Predatory delight flashed in the young man's eyes. Does that produce gigantic organisms? Nothing of the sort. Well, of course, the organisms I have obtained are bigger than usual, and they do have some new properties. But the main thing is, is not the size, but the incredible speed of reproduction, Persikoff heard him say to his utmost dismay. Having filled up a whole page, the young man turned over and went scribbling. Don't write that down, Persikoff croaked in despair, realizing that he was in the young man's hands. What are you writing? Is it true that in 48 hours you can hatch two million tadpoles from frog spawn? From how much spawn? exploded Persikoff, losing his temper again. Have you ever seen the spawn of a tree frog, say? From half a pound? asked the young man unabashed. Persikoff flushed with anger. Whoever measures it like that? Pah! What are you talking about? Of course, if you were to take half a pound of frog spawn, then perhaps, well, about that much, damn it, but perhaps a lot more. Diamonds flashed in the young man's eyes as he filled up yet another page in one fell swoop. Is it true that this will cause a world revolution in animal husbandry? Trust the press to ask a question like that, Persikoff howled. I forbid you to write such rubbish. I can see from your face that you're writing sheer nonsense. And now, 
if you would be so kind, Professor, a photograph of you, said the young man, closing his notepad with a snap. <laughs> Bulgakov was appointed to the Glav Politsprosvet, the Central Committee of the Republic for Political Education, as secretary to the literary section. And in 1924, he wrote Diaboliad, which included The Fatal Eggs, and Heart of a Dog in 1925. And in Heart of a Dog, a human heart gets transplanted into a dog, thereby giving the poor dog all the worst characteristics of humankind. So both books are about scientific discovery being misused, and Bulgakov had become a fan of H.G. Wells and was certainly influenced by his story, Food for the Gods, and other science fiction elements. His biography says, The most significant features of Bulgakov's satire, such as skillful blending of fantastic and realistic elements, grotesque situations, and a concern with important ethical issues had already taken shape. These features were developed further in his most famous novel. And a review from The Guardian said that the fatal egg served as an incubator for the distinctive satire and surrealism that we find in, and this is his uh, most famous novel, The Master and Margarita, Bulgakov's masterpiece. The Fatal Eggs, written in 1924 during Stalin's rise to power, attacks the Bolsheviks' belief that scientific development could lead to human perfection. No surprise, the miraculous light ray is revolutionary red. Bulgakov's parody is vividly surreal, and while this might be his way of avoiding censorship, his uh, bizarre images and dark humor are enjoyable. The works were published but highly criticized as contrary to the party line and viewed with suspicion. Uh, in particular, The Fatal Eggs was perceived to be a story satirizing the Russian Revolution, and less specifically, a commentary on progress and a rejection of revolution in favor of evolution or nature. The Fatal Eggs also introduces another of Bulgakov's uh, themes, the consequences of power in the hands of the ignorant. And so specifically in The Fatal Eggs, here's a bit more of the plot. By happenstance, a plague has been wiping out all of the chickens in Russia. Uh, so there's this tremendous shortage of chickens and eggs. And so here's an excerpt about how this is being presented to the public. So here is uh, some headlines that are uh, being put out to the public. Anti-foul vaccinations at Lefortova Veterinary Institute have produced brilliant results. The number of foul deaths for today has dropped by half. Then the loudspeaker changed its tone. Something growled inside it. A spray of green blazed up over the theater, then went out, and the loudspeaker complained in a deep bass. An extraordinary commission has been set up to fight the foul plague, consisting of the People's Commissar of Health, the People's Commissar of Agriculture, the Head of Animal Husbandry, Comrade, and then a bunch of Russian names that I won't pronounce for you, and Comrade Rabinovich. New attempts at intervention, the loudspeaker giggled and cried like a jackal, in connection with the foul plague. 
and there's a description for us here. And people crowded round the large notices on the walls lit by glaring red reflectors. And these uh, posters say, all consumption of chickens and chicken eggs is strictly forbidden on pain of severe punishment. Any attempt by private traders to sell them in markets is punishable by law with confiscation of all property. All citizens in possession of eggs are urgently requested to take them to local police stations. A screen on the roof of the workers' paper showed chickens piled up to the sky as greenish firemen, fragmenting and sparkling, hosed them with kerosene. Red waves washed over the screen, deathly smoke belched forth, swirling in clouds, and drifted up in a column. Then out hopped the fiery letters, dead chickens being burnt in Kodinka. Amid the madly blazing windows of shops, open until three in the morning with breaks for lunch and supper, boarded up windows with signs saying, eggs for sale, quality guaranteed, stared out blindly. Hissing ambulances with Moscow Health Department on them raced past policemen and overtook heavy buses, their sirens wailing. Someone else poisoned himself with rotten eggs, the crowd murmured. The world-famous Empire restaurant in Petrovsky lines glowed with green and orange lamps, and inside it, by the portable telephones on the tables, laid liquor-stained cardboard notices saying, No omelets until further notice. Try our fresh oysters. Need I say here that Volgakov was heavily influenced by the absurdism of Gogol. Volgakov explained that every chicken dies— Uh, But most people recover from eating rotten eggs or diseased chickens. But he also goes into all the conspiracy theories that are circulating, along with ridiculous headlines about politicians being accused of deliberately sabotaging the chickens, and then entertainers making comedy about egg shortage. So all these things about human nature. Uh, At this point now, Alexander Seminovich fate arrives. He keeps calling the professor comrade, says he has been put in charge of the Red Ray Model State Farm, gotta love that name, is on secret business and has a warrant. And so here the professor tries to figure out what this guy, fate's intention is. But a person should know what he's doing. Why have you latched on to this ray? Because it's a matter of greatest importance. Hmm, the greatest importance? There's one thing I can't understand, said Persikoff. Why the need for all this speed and secrecy? You've got me all muddled up, Professor, Fate replied. You know there's not a single chicken left in the whole country. Well, what of it? Persikoff howled. Surely you're not going to try and resurrect them all at the drop of a hat, are you? And why do you need this ray, which hasn't been properly studied yet? Comrade Professor... Fate replied, you've got me all muddled again. Honest, you have. I'm telling you that we must put poultry keeping back on its feet again because they're writing all sorts of rotten things about us abroad. Okay, I won't comment on that for a moment. So over the objections of the professor, the government decides to grab Professor Persikoff's ray to stimulate the growth of new chickens. And, you know... What could possibly go wrong? Okay, so it just so happens that a huge batch of exotic reptile eggs are on their way to the professor, 
at that moment so he can continue his experiments just as a huge batch of clean chicken eggs, uh, not rotten chicken eggs, are on their way to the chicken bureaucrat from abroad. And guess what? They get mixed up. So the foolish animal farm bureaucrat starts breeding up absolutely enormous snakes and crocodiles, frogs, and of all things, ostriches. I will say if you have a phobia about snakes, uh, there are a few sections you might want to skip in the book. But initially, in perfect Bulgakov style, the bureaucrats deny the seriousness of the problem. In fact, the farm bureaucrat who was trained as a flautist uh, tries to calm the monstrous anaconda that he encounters by serenading it with a waltz. And note to listeners, that didn't work. Okay, so picture this. Guess what? Everyone freaks out. The reptiles start killing people. The government calls in the military. And people uh, rush out to praise the military who are going to save them. And here's how Bulgakov tells it. Every 10 minutes, trains made up of goods vans, passenger carriages of different classes, and even tank trucks kept arriving with fear-crazed folk clinging to them with people packed riding in buses and on the roofs of trams, crushing one another and getting run over. Now and then came the anxious crack of shots being fired above the crowd at the station. That was the military detachment stopping panic-stricken, demented people who were running along the railway track from Smolensk province to Moscow. Now and then the glass in the station windows would fly out with a light frenzied sob and the steam engines start wailing. The streets were strewn with posters which had been dropped and trampled on while the same posters stared out from the walls under the hot red reflectors. Everyone knew what they said and no one read them anymore. They announced that Moscow was now under martial law. Panicking was forbidden on threat of severe punishment, and Red Army detachments armed with poison gas were already on their way to Smolensk province. But the posters could not stop the howling night. In their apartments, people dropped and broke dishes and vases, ran about banging into things, tied and untied bundles and cases, in the vain hope of somehow getting to Kalanchevskaya Square and Yaroslav or Nikolayevsky station. But alas, all the stations to the north and east were surrounded by a dense cordon of infantry and huge lorries, swaying and rattling their chains, piled high with boxes on top of which said Red Army men in pointed helmets, bayonets at the ready, were evacuating gold bullion from the vaults of the People's Commissariat of Finances and large crates marked handle with care. Cars were roaring and racing all over Moscow. Far away in the sky was the reflected glow of a fire, and the constant boom of cannons rocked the dense blackness of August. Towards morning, a huge snake of cavalry, thousands strong, hooves clattering on the cobblestones, wended their way up Terveskaya through sleepless Moscow, which had still not extinguished a single light. Everyone in its path huddled against entrances and shop windows, knocking in panes of glass. 
The ends of crimson helmets dangled down gray backs, and pike tips pierced the sky. At the sight of these advancing columns cutting their way through the sea of madness, the frantic wailing crowds of people seemed to come to their senses. There were hopeful shouts from the thronged pavements. Hooray! Long live the cavalry! shouted some frenzied women's voices. Hooray! echoed some men. Packets of cigarettes, silver coins, and watches flew into the columns from the pavements. Some women jumped out from the roadway at great risk and ran alongside the cavalry, clutching the stirrups and kissing them. Then there's a long description of more equipment that's on their way, heavy tanks and the cavalry columns, gray armored cars, and then some of them marked with pipes sticking out and white skulls painted on the sides over the words volunteer chem poison gas. Let them have it, lads, the crowds on the pavements shouted. Kill the reptiles. Save Moscow. And as so often happens with a mob, the idea springs to life that a scientist is responsible for this catastrophe, and they begin a vigilante search for the professor. Any of this sound familiar? A review in The Economist said, quote, The Russian author takes digs at the church, heedless carousers in the streets, blinkered scientists, and naturally at the Bolsheviks. But his depiction of blasé, incompetent, officialdom resonates across the ages and all forms of government. Let's finish up with uh, Bulgakov's life. He was obviously skilled in writing with enough subtlety that it wasn't always clear who was right or wrong in his stories. His novel, The White Guard, portrayed the supporters of the anti-Bolshevik movement during the Russian revolutions, and it was published and adapted to the stage with the title, The Days of the Turbans. And Stalin, who had taken power after Lenin, liked the play and felt that ultimately it was favorable to the Bolsheviks. So he saw it some 15 times and uh, supported its being uh, brought back to the stage over and over again. And with Stalin's support, Bulgakov wrote plays for the Moscow Art Theater from 1925 to 1928. In general, audiences liked his plays, but they were denounced by party critics. And then in 1929, his works were banned for ideological nonconformity. And I'm just going to say that for you here again ideological nonconformity, and they were banned. So he was out of work, and he petitioned Stalin to either give him some work or let him leave the country. And so Stalin appointed him to the art theater uh, in an official capacity as a producer. He stayed there until 1936 when he quit over what he thought was a mishandling of his play, A Cabal of Hypocrites. Great name, right? He continued to write until his death in 1940, and in 1960 with the cultural thaw that uh, was undertaken during Nikita Khrushchev's leadership after he took power in 1953, Bulgakov's work was revived, and he became lauded then as one of the finest 20th century Russian writers long after his death. He had hidden uh, the manuscript for his masterpiece, what he thought would be his masterpiece, and he was right, 
uh, the master and Margarita with his wife and with a friend, and where they were secretly held until his, quote, rehabilitation. I just want to state the obvious here. If you are an author or a thinker whose ideas are unpopular right now, you can keep Bulgakov's life story in mind. Your work might be discovered long after your death and have the great impact that you hoped it would have during your lifetime. You never know. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.